Hey, this is the moment of Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is my friend, Antonio Delgado. Uh, Antonio is the Lieutenant Governor of the state of New York. He was just appointed to that post, but he's standing for election tomorrow. If you're in New York, go to the polls. I will say I've, I've had very few, maybe one uh, politician ever uh, on this podcast. And I, Antonio, I don't consider you, uh, you know, when I think of the word politician, it's a very thin word and it, it, it speaks mostly to the ambition to gain office most of the time, as opposed to being a statesperson or somebody concerned about participating. And the, yeah. the fact that uh, I, I know you and I've spent time with you, um, not when you were campaigning, but uh, with your wife, Lacey Schwartz, who's an incredible filmmaker who I know, and, and with your family, I, I, I know your intentions. And that's why I wanted to have you on. And that's why I'm support you this 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 fully so thanks for taking time to have this conversation well, I, I certainly appreciate um our friendship uh and the very kind words and you know i always try to stress that i'm a public servant um and that's really what this work should be about the word politician is such a loaded term these days it means so many different things um so i just keep it simple because i really do care about serving the public um, and want to be in a position where um, at a time where I think service is really required to step up and, and meet the moment. Well, I want to go deeper into that because look, Antonio, you are, you're a remarkable figure, man. Uh, I mean, you're a Rhodes Scholar. You're a Harvard Law graduate. You played college basketball, which means you know how to be part of a team and you know how to work hard enough to get really good at something and maximize whatever gifts you had. Uh, you were a rap artist. Uh, you, you made records. You didn't just love hip hop, but you made records. Um, you have a world of possibility out there for yourself. And, and I've, I've wondered often, you know, why is public, you're somebody who's highly marketable. You could really capitalize all this if you wanted to. And perhaps someday you, you will, uh, you know, do something in the private sector again. But you, why is public service worth the sacrifices of, of your privacy, of, of, of time with your family, of, of financial well-being? It's a real question. I, Amy and I sometimes drive away from seeing you guys and it's like, Man, if people understood how much they're sacrificing. And so talk a little bit about, about that because it's boundless, the possibilities for you in the private sector. So, you know, a lot of politicians, it's, uh, this is all they got. So w w why is it worth it, man? I mean, you know, there's a, a lot of times I, I like to think that when you try to live your life, you want to live your life in the most authentic way you can. Um, you want to feel like you're walking in your purpose. And sometimes your purpose is not, more often than not, your purpose is not determined by you. You, you kind of, your experiences, how you were brought up, um, you know, sort of shape what you ultimately um, want to become and how you want to orient yourself in society and identify yourself in society. And all I can do is point to my upbringing and how I was raised. You know, I was raised um, very much in tune with understanding the strides that have been made historically by people of color in America in partnership with their white brothers and sisters to improve people's lives and overcome some real dark moments uh, in our country's history. And I very much identify with that legacy. And I think that's because of what my parents put into me when I was coming of age 
um, what I learned when I studied in school and with my church, um, you know, growing up. I just feel like the recipe, the ingredients were sort of put into me. Um, Because I've thought about this myself, you know, anybody should think about why they do what they do, right? Like, why? Why do you do it? Like, why? (laughs) And yeah. And uh, and yeah, so you're not just an automaton, right? So you're not just sort of serving out a function, but you're coming from the place that feels most alive in you. And if you look at my life, right, you kind of laid it out, right? I've never, I've always tried to do things that felt really authentic and true to me. And whenever I was in a space where it didn't feel true or authentic, it was a really hard space for me to be in. So, you know, even after law school, a lot of folks were surprised that I decided to go become a hip hop artist in L.A. after receiving a law degree. Right. I think I think people were surprised by that, um, but it felt real and it felt natural to me. Um, even when I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship back in college, you know, that happened. In a, it wasn't like I was plotting that out or or trying to see if I could. I got, it wasn't a plan. My my. my my mentor told me on college on, a, on the campus where then we were walking. He just pulled me aside and said, "Hey, you should think about applying for this scholarship." I mean, literally out of the blue. And I said, "Really? You think I should?" He said, "Yeah, you should. I think you have a good chance." I thought he was joking. Um, oh, and, you did really? Yeah. I just it wasn't even on my radar. And so, and so, but but he gave me the confidence to pursue it, and then that became a whole new world for me. So my whole life, I mean, even when I went to from hip hop to, to working at a, a law firm, very different environments. The big thing that was motivating me then was Lacey and I w- were back together. We wanted to get married, we wanted to have kids. And so my priorities shifted. My focus was on coming back to New York, starting my family, providing for my family, knowing that that wasn't going to be the last stop, but it was gonna be a key stop for me to, to really anchor myself with my family and then build from there. Um, and then going ultimately into public service after the 2016 election, which again was something that arose in me in that moment. It, I felt compelled. I felt compelled to serve. It wasn't, oh, what's the next thing for me to do? It's, wait a second, the world is changing around me in a way that I don't like. I've experienced a lot of things up to this point that I think have given me a really good perspective on life, a diverse set of experiences. I feel very fortunate to be in the place that I'm in right now having come from working class roots. And I feel a responsibility to actually step up and do some work here um, and lean in. And so the answer is really from within. It's just, it's an unspoken truth in the sense that you just are who you are um, and you have to be in tune with yourself. And you're right, it's a lot of sacrifice. It's a hell of a lot of sacrifice, but the trade-off too is, and I, I never get tired of talking about this, is the love you get in return. You know, the people who ultimately say, keep doing it, we need you, or we believe in you, or, you know, how can we help? You know, that, that spirit of generosity is, is such an important aspect to this that you can't put a, a value on that. It's priceless. Talk about that love a little bit, because not just the, um, you know, the, the district you represented as a congressman, you were elected in... Uh, I think it's the eighth most rural district, the eighth most rural yes. district in the country. Uh, you're a person of color. You're a person of color. It's it's a it it went. I know it went for Obama, but it also went for Trump. The the, the district went for Trump, and when you were elected to for you know it was it went for Trump in 2016, and then you're elected 2018, 2020, and it is a district where I can be on a bicycle and and honestly get shouted down uh, if I'm wearing blue, but. 
talk a little bit about your mission and and how your belief in sort of humanity and love and and as opposed to being defeated by the idea of our diver, you know, of our polarity, the polarity that exists right now, which is another word for hatred in a way. And so how do you combat all this divisive hatred with this, I've heard you talk about it before, this idea you kind of got from John Lewis about a certain kind of love, or love is a verb. No, absolutely. And, you know, the person who has undoubtedly, historically, and I look back at history, who has undoubtedly shaped my perspective more than anybody else, excluding my parents, um, is Dr. King. Um, there's just no question about it that I have, for whatever reason, been long. Um, I, I just have always been drawn to the magnitude of his capacity to find love and to face hate with love. Um, and the entire strategy of nonviolence and just the power of that, Gandhi too, you know, these things have been utilized to change hearts and minds in ways that no other way could do it. Um, and that gives me hope because it's worked. It's not like we're not better off for it. We're, we're a lot better off for it, right? So, so we've seen progress, demonstrable, transformative progress happen when you meet hate with love. I haven't seen the other equation work where you meet hate with hate. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that equation come to fruition in a positive fashion. I've seen it lead to destruction, um, you know, but I haven't seen it actually elevate people's consciousness. And so when you talk about the work that I've been doing in a district that's 90% white, that's the first person of color to represent upstate New York in a seat that Trump won, it starts with love, man. It starts with actually connecting with people in a real way. And, they, and you mentioned a verb, right? It's a strong and demanding love. You know, Dr. King would always talk about how he, he is this quote he used, he used to always say where, it's like, it's not, I'm not talking about just some emotional bosh. He would be clear. I'm not, I'm not, this is not, you know, Cupid stuff we're talking about here. We're talking about a strong and demanding love. That, I think it was that supreme principle that unifies all of the religions across the world. That's how powerful this concept is. It is the unifying force of every religion across the world. Love. So, so, so. When you, when you lead with love and you demand, you're actually demanding the people live up to who they really are, to live up to their better angels, to live up to their ideals. And I think that to me is what drives me, is to try okay, to do that. How, here's, my, yeah, here's my question, how do you do it? Because it's hard, it's hard to do. Like I can barely even watch those hearings. Like when you know that there's bad faith, now, we'll talk about the job you're doing, you know, you just started to do and that you're going to continue to do for at least four more years, in the, which is an executive function, but and a really, you know, crucial one at this time for New York State. But when I watch the bad faith actors in Washington, who were your colleagues, I would think that I would have such a hard time, you know, uh, just for the audience out there, I'm going to use the word comedy, which is not comedy, but this idea that you're supposed to be super collegial with people and respectful. But, dude, how do you do it when you're met with bad faith, when you're met with bullshit? 
And 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 why is it worth doing in, in, in now in the, in that in that context? Well, the it I do it um, because the work is necessary to do, and the ability to do it comes from, I think, a massive belief in not just us as individuals, you know, trying to work together collectively, but in the fact that fundamentally I'm just a part of a larger energy source. I'm just a part of something bigger than myself. And so to get, to get fixated on some other element um, of the equation and let it sort of take away my perspective from the big picture, um, that is perspective is the word, right? I, I try to keep a perspective on the time that I have on earth, what I'm trying to accomplish, while I'm on earth <laughs> and aware of my sense of self. <laughs> and, and then from there, realizing that everybody else is in the same boat. Everybody's in the same boat in that regard. Everybody, everybody, no one gets a pass. <laughs> so, so, so it almost, it, it kind of humbles you. It gives you more empathy for those folks who even, who you might know have, uh, you know, dark motivations. Um, and you surround yourself with your allies and you, you soak up the love and you feed off of what you know is also true, which is that there's another counterweight to that dark energy that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be nurtured, that needs to be tapped into. Otherwise, the other side is going to keep growing. Um, and so you just have to continue to believe in it uh, and do the work. The other part, what was the other piece? The second part of your question was, what was the second part? Well, I mean, you kind of gave a fairly like complete both, answer to it. It was like the how and the why. Well, no, the how. Like, but I guess what I was really trying to, like, you know, you look at how many road rage incidents there are. Human beings have a really difficult time yes, they mastering do. their emotions in that way, right? Most of us have a hard time becoming the masters of our own emotions, especially when we're being gaslit on that level that in Congress you sometimes are by those um, on opposite sides. And I wonder, because it's a remarkable thing about you is that your ability to have this kind of equanimity, man, and, and, and be able to stay positive. And I think it's a lesson that people can take from you, which is like, everything you just described is intellectual process. I mean, do you just not get the emotions that run hot that you then have to deal with in that, in that way? You know, so the second part of your question, and, I, and I'm going to answer that, that question too, but the second part was, it just came to me, was why? Like, I, I explained the how, yeah. but the why, like why is it so important? And I guess I did speak to that a little bit, but the why really boils down to the stakes. Like, what is at stake? Yes. And what is at stake in the simplest way is good versus evil. Right. That's the simplest yes. way. <laughs> it's good versus evil. Um, uh, but within that fight, it are systems, ideas that are fit to try to erect for the betterment of goodness, for the betterment of effectuating a loving or beloved community. Democracy being one of those institutions. It's one of the most profound ideas yes. in, human, in human history. Right. And so understand the power of that idea and what it can do to change lives and create freedom of movement, freedom of opportunity to start where you, to start where you are, no matter where you are and feel like you're, you're able to chase something and be free doing it uninhibited. 
that's life. You want that in life. You want to be accounted for. You want to feel like you're heard, you're understood. And so democracy to me is such a foundational critical aspect to everything we do for those of us who believe in, in the fight, the overarching fight of good you know, versus evil. It is the, you know, you can make a number of arguments around, you know, religion and spirituality, but from a purely institutional sense of politics, it is the one of the most important, if not the most important tool we have in the battle <laughs> is the idea of democracy. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I fully agree with you. And I, you know, was really worried and I still am about us tripping into fascism because that's how it happens. People say it could never happen here right up until it does. Yeah. And, and so until your other question about my emotions, um, perspective helps on that. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say, I don't feel emotions. I don't get angry. Of course I get angry. Like everybody, I get angry. Like, I run hot sometimes. There's no question about it. Um, but I've learned over time to watch myself in those moments. Sometimes you can get hot, right, in a situation and let the emotions dictate it, right? They, they take over. And I've trained uh, to the extent that I can. I've tried to train my mind to be mindful of the emotional state that I am in. So it's kind of a, taking a third eye point of view, right? You're, you're, you're outside yourself, watching yourself, saying, okay, you're angry. Yes, that's okay. How, now, how are you going to navigate through this? Why are you angry? Is there a way to not be as angry? Maybe you should put yourself in the other person's shoes, figure out what they're, how they're coming at this, right? Like, but you have to step outside of yourself to do that, right? And so- How did you train yourself to do that, Antonio? How did you train yourself to do that? A couple of ways. Um, reading a lot of books on, um, on you know, uh, spirituality and especially Eastern philosophy, um, yes. you know, the power of, of you know, being a witness um, to the world and to yourself, uh, you know, meditating on it uh, and then living it, like putting it in practice and trying to find every example known to, 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 to humanity <laughs> to, test, to test myself, whether it's in my relationship with my wife, right, with Lacey, whether it's my relationship with my kids, right? Because yes. you, people closest to you are the ones who can tap in the, the most fiercely into your emotions. So you're constantly, in those personal relationships, you have a number of ways to engage. And I always tell Lacey, I said, to me, a being in a marriage is the ultimate test for losing your ego, which in my world is the devil. The ego is the devil, right? So how do you put yourself through the paces to constantly say, how do I suppress my ego? How do I make sure that the ego isn't what's dominating how I operate. It can't drive, how the ego is not driving. Deep humility, not not the fake humility of winning an award and saying you're right. humbled. You're talking about a deep humility of, I don't know every, what I know is that I love, what I know is that I'm present, exactly. and now together we're going to figure it. It's a deep humility, right? That you're trying yeah, to, that, 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 that we try to find a way to get to, but it's hard. Yeah, it's very, very hard. But to me, the power of public service, and this ties back to your question about, you know, the, the why, why I'm even doing it. To me, the for me, again, this is, it, it's a constant practice of what I think is most important when I think, when I search for meaning and purpose in life. I mean, listen, man, I studied philosophy in undergrad and in grad school. So I've spent a lot of my years, <laughs> my adult life, wrestling with big questions, really existential, abstract, intellectual questions 
And that's, that's just how I've spent a lot of my time um, here on earth, right? So, so I bring all that perspective and all of that soul searching, I guess, um, to bear when I think about the work that I do in day in and day out. And I look at the work of public service as an incredibly instructive forum and an environment and arena to operate within that constantly puts those skills to the test and constantly sharpens those skills, hopefully for the betterment of the very people that I'm trying to help, right? And, and in terms of elevating my skill set. Yeah, that all, that all makes sense as an I- ideal. It's my, my daughter minored in philosophy and she loved, I mean, she loves it. You know, she just graduated and we talk, she's constantly throwing Schopenhauer in my face and uh, <laughs> I have to do, I have to catch up. But, the world is but a stage. Yeah, I have to try and, and catch up. Talk a little bit about your mission in the world right now as you approach looking at, at New York State, but also New York as, um, in lots of ways, synecdoche for the whole country. I mean, New York is... Uh, because New York is vast and New York isn't just New York City. And nope. within New York, you can find a lot of America. And so can you, can you just talk about what your mission is? Why this job that you're in now and that you're running for again uh, matters specifically so much? Yes. Yeah, let's take it down to a less abstract place and talk a little bit about the practical realities because... Yeah, you know, that's yeah. where the work actually happens. And then yeah. we're going to get into some biography stuff because I want people to understand where you came from. But but talk about this stuff for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, again, going back to the challenges of protecting democracy, which to me um, is of utmost importance. We're seeing, you know, the system come undone uh, from within. We're seeing institutions um, that are meant to have integrity um, and give confidence to the American people. Um, whether it's our judicial system, our legislative body, um, or even, you know, the executive branch. Uh, you know, I, I think there's been, over the last decade or so, uh, an intense um, undermining of these institutions that are meant to help us navigate through very challenging times and empower ourselves as individuals okay. and as a, as a collective. And, and you, you put that in a larger context of the international dynamic, you know, with what's going on with the rise of autocrats and authoritarianism, um, and just a legitimate public-facing uh, campaign by Russia, by China, to undermine the very idea of, legitim- of democracy being legitimate. Um, there's a lot of pressure points happening right now. And so I look at New York, and I look at New York as, as, as a strong, strong beacon of hope um, and, 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 you know, a, and a shiny example of where we should continue to be as a collective, you know, pushing towards um, and I, if you look at the history of New York, whether it's being out front on the right to choose for women or it's, or, you know, gay marriage or, uh, the labor movement or the environmental movement, or just the, the being in the epicenter of multiculturalism, um, and tolerance and acceptance, um, especially in New York city, right? If, if you look at all these dynamics and what we're facing right now across the, the country, right? There's a countervailing force that is really at complete odds with all of that. Right, that 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 wants it to be more um, 
uh, rigid, wants there to be more segregation, wants it to be more hierarchical, wants less equity, wants to sort of maintain a certain social order um, that benefits only a select few. Um, and I think that, yes. that piece to me is where New York has to be out front and lead. And so for me to step into this role as a statewide actor and be a voice that can breathe life into that and not just be a voice, but be an, an agent for effectuating change through meaningful investments in those communities that have been historically marginalized or left behind or, or forgotten, whether they're black, brown or poor white people, there needs to be a concerted effort to galvanize that group of individuals who have not fully been empowered. And they're empowered by investing in them. They're empowered by making sure that our resources go to those communities in a meaningful way and get complete buy-in on the fact that, yes, this can work. I was sitting, uh, I think it was Queens. I was talking to a gentleman from Bangladesh and, you know, struck up a conversation with him. And he was talking about how, you know, America is so special. He was telling me, you know, in his country, you know, how they vote, who they vote, you know, never quite clear. They, they don't, they can't live amongst certain groups of people. You know, he, he, he feels like he's free here and he's free to pursue whatever his dreams are or his kids are free to do whatever they want to do. And he was, and I was listening to him and I was like, you know what? We, we've kind of let that story slip through our fingertips a little bit. That used to be the calling card of America. Yes. That was it. I remember growing up in the 80s and the 90s, and that was the calling card. This was the place where if you're, if you're fleeing from, from harm, if you're fleeing from violence, if you're fleeing, fleeing from hunger, read the Statue of Liberty, right? Give me your huddled masses, right? Like so, Yes, of course. yearning to be free. This is, this is what the state for sure has been at the forefront to represent, but also the country. But if you think if you had like, if you had to draw you know, all if you know that the fight is for democracy and the fight is to bring hope and, and light to the world and that America is trying to be in that space and you had to figure out, OK, where 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 in the United States is, is that most potent? Where is it most where we can do the most work in that regard? New York is it, period. New York is that state yes. that that can be out front and, and wave the flag for the rest of the. Yeah, you know, I was just. uh I, as you were speaking and I was getting swept up in, in, you know, your your rhetorical skills are so amazing and you mean it. But then as soon as you were talking, you know, I just read uh, the book that my, my son and Eric Holder wrote. And uh, it's all about voting, the history of voting rights and just yes. how nebulous voting rights are. I mean, yes, America had that as an ideal, an idea. But as you know, man, as a person of color, but and and as a man on the other side of it, like like uh, the country really wasn't what it represented itself to be. Uh, it's only been that for a few shining moments, which is what is so heavy to me and why all this is so important right now, because we've teetered uh, on on being what we say we are or not for the whole history of the country. Right. Absolutely. You know. But don't even look at it from the standpoint of the country. Think about human history. Yes. Okay. Worse. That's think worse. About, much worse. Think about, think about you know, I mean, I mean, the, the project of humanity, right, has been pretty dark for, for the vast majority of our time, right? So, so, so we're on the, I like to look at it though. We've, we're kind of on, 
we're, we're kind of on the cutting edge, hopefully, right, of human history. Like we are embarking, we are, we are on the front lines of this transition into a more, yeah. you know, elevated world, a more um, conscious uh, world about how we, who we are. It is very challenging um, to not be swept up in the vast history of humanity. We're going to carry all of that with us. And America has attempted uh, in its formation and its ideals to put a sort of flag down and say, okay, we're going to put a marker down, <laughs> right? Right. In, in, in the context of all this yes. history, of violence, of destruction, of war, of mayhem, right? <laughs> in, the, in the context of all of this throughout human history, we're also going to plant, plant a flag and we're going to say, hey, guys, there could be another way. <laughs> yeah, there could be a way where if we yeah we're almost going to try to speak it into like by speaking it we're almost going to try to speak it into truth the the yes. ideals of the country even though it was even at its formation it wasn't yes. but we're going no, to try to speak it into reality and you have to believe in that I mean it, it, listen it's just like I think I think of it like faith you know and for me you know you have to believe either you don't believe or you do believe but I personally believe that there's a higher power that there's something out there that I am connected to that is bigger than me. That is the reason why I just happen to be here, right? So, so, so again, not having to put name to it, anything specific, but just acknowledging that there's something more. And to be, and this is what I think Dr. King was getting at when he said the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The, the arc of the moral universe, right? It's this idea that yes. it, bend, it is bending, but fundamentally we have to bend it. <laughs> like, well, that's what I was going to say is like, yes, even if a trend line is going up, because like, you're totally right, of course, Antonio, that, uh, and it's like what Steven Pinker's book talked about and lots of books look at the world and you can just show by sort of all sorts of numbers, this is the best it's ever been. But as you know, that kind of, I think it's logarithmic or, or whichever one, you can look at it goes like this, but within that, there could be these dips, Yes, right? Absolutely. It could be going up. But those dips, those little dips backwards on the upward trajectory can really wipe a lot of good shit out, you know? Oh, and absolutely. That's why it's but, but, so important to me that, that, that people like you get to get to serve because it's the, the chance to kind of be the bulwark against those 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 downturns that have real you know bad effect on, on, on people. And I, let's, I imagine... Let me let me just put a finer point on on the on the American experience because in many respects, and again, my perspective, I always go back to my perspective. So I'm only, I'm coming at this as a very proud American. Okay. So I'm coming at this as somebody who's my I identify deeply with what America is and what it is striving to become. And so yes. when you think about what is happening at this point in time in our country's history, we are going through a period of transition that is unique in our country's history, meaning the demographics are changing. For the vast majority of this country's history, it has been a majority white uh, country. That has been the history of the country. Yes. And we are literally in the space right now where those that demographic, you know, dynamic is changing. It is, it, we, it is moving beneath our feet. 
And you can see examples of that in how we break history in different ways. And it also takes step backs in different ways because we're, we're wrestling with this transition. You know, Obama in 08, Trump right after. We're, we're wrestling with the transition that the country is making. And people are, some people are very afraid of this transition. And I get that. This is where the empathy has to be at a high, high level. Because this is a big deal. This change is big. And so for anybody to go through change in your personal life, it's hard to go through change. Even if you think it might be good for you, it's still hard yes. to yes. say to yourself, I want, I want to, I'm going to accept something that, I, that is unfamiliar to me, that doesn't, that I don't know what it fully means for me. I don't know what that fully means for me. And it's incumbent upon our leaders who are in this moment to help us make that transition. And there are way more people out there right now who are aware the transition is happening, but they're doing everything in their power to tap into the fear and anxiety around it for their own benefit. Yeah, instead of seeing the positives in, in what this experiment, what, where you know, of, of where the American experiment can finally get to, exactly. which is a, exactly. an actual democracy, a democratic republic, but an actual right. democracy. A multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, fully functioning, robust democracy, right? <laughs> like, like that is the, that, that's the trend line in my mind, but it's always going to have setbacks because that's just the way life works. It's, you know, it's, it's a yin-yang dynamic. Have you thought about what this strain of, use the word autocracy earlier, what this strain of autocratic thinking or, 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 or what the appeal is of, and, and it's not only an appeal to purely white communities either. Uh, no. it, there is this, uh, you feel some people wanting to hew to this fascistic idea, whether they would define it that way or not, but of strong top-down leadership that's going to create hard red lines of acceptable and unacceptable. And, 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 have you thought, because in order to combat that, I think we have to understand it. So do you understand totally, where that totally. comes from? That's, that's a great question. And I have thought about that. And it, it boils down to a couple of things, I, I think. I think it is, it is natural for human beings to like order. Um, I think it is comforting. It feels uh, safe. It's safe, right? It's secure. When you when when things are predictable, um, they can make your life choices a lot simpler, and <laughs> how you go about your life. And the the more the more um, the more messy democracy gets, right? And the more uncertain, and the more it also is becomes democracy in name only, as opposed to actually, you know, being democracy. Um, the more people are gonna want or look for it instinctively for something that feels more certain, even if it means giving up some of their freedoms. Because the illusion of order, the idea of order feels, it, it, it merges with this idea of security and safety some, yes. in their minds. Yes, but again, in the, the, 
that's why, but it's also important to contrast that with a dysfunctional democracy. Because if you have a dysfunctional democracy, then that makes the drive to want, the, the, you lose the moral high ground, right? In that space, the moral high ground disappears. And then it becomes a choice of, what do I prefer given the lesser, the lesser of two things, right? Lesser evil of two things. And, and if you can't, and if, if your day-to-day life is how you measure that, um, and you're looking at it from the standpoint of, well, I just want to be able to wake up and be, be comfortable with what the day is going to look like, what's going to happen, um, you know, and be secure, then you can see how instinctively um, that, is, that is a part of the equation. The other part, though, is, and I, don't, I haven't thought about this in a, in a while, but power and what power actually is, right, and how it manifests and what, how people respond to power. You know, I think people, and I'm speaking in very general terms, but people yes. by and large are infatuated with power. Um, they, they, there's something very alluring about power because power means you have the you have the ability to make somebody do something or prevent them from doing something that's really what it boils down to you have that power um and so people who are who are lost in the world or people who are uncertain of how they fit into the world you know have big questions about their own sense of self and what it all means when they are around power and they and it there's something about that that can be comforting. There's something about the idea that, okay, this person, this person that I know that I can connect with is powerful. There's, yes. a, there's a certain level of comfort there by, by extension, right? You're And where's the lie in this? And now talk about what the lie in that is though, because there's a lie in it, right? Meaning those people don't necessarily, in, in real life, those people who present with that kind of power aren't actually protecting the average no, person. No, no, right? no, no, they, they are. They are charlatans in some respects, right? The, 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 yes. The, they, 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 the goal is to create the illusion that their power is going to be helpful <laughs> to that person who feels powerless. Um, and that is, on, sadly, what I think our politics has generally become. And people... What's interesting, I think, though, is because people aren't dumb, right? It is, we have great people have good instincts. One thing I've learned about people, because I do, I do a lot of interaction with people, they know when you're real and when you're not real pretty quickly. They have to choose after that moment how they want to engage with that, right? They can choose oh, if they yeah. want. They can say, okay, I know he's not real, but whatever, right? Or they can say he's not real or she's not real. I'm not engaging at all. Or they can say this person's real and I really want to tap into this person. And you, it's like a dog who, who can sense fear. We have the same, I think, capacity as human beings when it comes to authenticity. And so what happens is a lot of people are smart enough to even see past some of the BS, right? To see that it is, you just, not everybody, but there's a good enough number of people who can, who can see through that, you know, fakeness. But absent an alternative, right? It's kind of like, well, I know it's, I know it's not real. I know it's 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 kind of a game to me, uh, to this person. But at the end of the day, what's the alternative? Or what you know that that person is able to speak to something else for them, or speak to them in a way 
that allows them to feel connected to them, even if even if they know that that person isn't fully yes. genuine, because that person is speaking to something else. Yes, well, it's like when you when you talk about this and about identifying with this or wanting to be sort of, you know, I'm 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 thinking about I'm thinking about Dutchess County, and I'm thinking about most of the time when I'm around people who have different set of beliefs than I do about politics. Up there, I get along with everybody. We have so much in common. There's so much that we see the same. But you can feel that the moment, you know, if I took off, uh, if I was wearing a, a, a Knicks hat or a Yankees hat or, a, a, you know, a hat from the, the Kingston uh, farmer's market, we're great. The moment I might wear a hat that was, you know, associated with my set of political beliefs, you could just see people becoming tense, tight, because uh, if it, it it strikes it there the a way they're identifying themselves, and I guess what I want to ask you is like, wh- how do you, how what's your technique as you talk to people for 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 reminding them, hey, ninety five percent of this is we're a big commonality, and we can't let the other side drive. You 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 know you know what yeah, I mean? No, how no. do you I think do it? The biggest thing to do is to listen, let people be heard. You know. So, and I'm, I'm going to say that this is a problem for my Democratic friends, those of us who are, you know, um, in the Democratic Party. Um, I feel like what I've experienced is we are very quick to judge. Yes, we are very, I agree. We are very quick to ascribe intentions. Um, to people based on their behavior. This is brilliant. Yep. Without without doing the hard work of, and again, doing the work of liberalism, by the way, because to be a liberal, fundamentally, and this is something that my mentor, who I lost, you know, some years ago, right before I actually ran for office, but he's probably the most important person for me in terms of my political outlook, um, in terms of my education. He would always talk about how Liberalism is a philosophy because it is committed to seeking truth. Conservatism is an ideology because it is a political theory. But to be a a philosophy, you have to have truth as your end. And that means you have to be open-ended. You have to have a process. You can't let tradition or rituals or mores get in the way of the process of getting to truth. You've got to be willing to have that open-ended process in the name of truth. Whereas conservatism is a mindset where the priorities are traditions, which have complete value and, they, and, and rituals. And you know these are the pieces that, that we have to protect, but that have to be protected within a liberal framework because liberalism allows all of these worldviews to manifest and to operate conceptually, philosophically. That's the beauty of it. It allows everything to flourish. And so when you say, how do I connect? I connect by not being dogmatic. I connect by saying, I want to understand your perspective. I want to listen to you. I want to hear where you're coming from without judgment. I want to, I want, and I want you to know that I am processing this and I'm not listening to it to judge you. I'm listening to it to understand you. And when people experience that, even if you ultimately end up disagreeing at a later point in the conversation, right? They also remember how you made them feel 
at the beginning of that conversation. And, and that genuine human connection that to your point we talked about earlier, we're all just trying to figure this out. We're all trying to figure it out. And yes. so, <laughs> and so yeah. starting from that standpoint, and then of course, grounding it in some concrete things that are familiar. You know, my family matters a lot to me. So talking about family, talking about, you know, your kids, your, your cousins, your nieces, your nephews, whatever, talking about your community and, you know, or, you know, how your parents raised you, where, they, where you come from, you know, like grounding it in a world beyond the political dynamic and grounding it in the, the human dynamic first. And then you can build on top of that. Most folks, like you say, we share the same values. The question is how we effectuate those values, right? How do we how do we pursue or how are how are our our fears that we're going to lose i mean that's part of it right is i i uh because i've thought about i've tried to think about this a lot like you know the different reactions when i try to think about the different reactions to something like what what happened in texas when when children are murdered uh you know uh and i I see the the different reactions to something like that. It immediately makes me enraged, right? My reaction when somebody starts dissembling about that instead of just going, well, obviously we haven't done this right, figuring out who should have uh, access to certain kinds of firearms and when. That kind of thing but, you know, instead of just being like reasonable, when people try to, and then I try to say to myself, well, they're scared. There's a fear they have that if guns are taken away, their liberty is going to be gone. Just to go back to the root word, liberal. Like, 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 they, and, but, but still, the initial reaction is just like, uh, you know, you, you, how do you fight that? And I guess it goes back to that earlier question. You're just able to keep in mind, Antonio, because you've trained yourself to not take the bait, huh? You can't. And, and, then, and then the other way to put it is, OK, if you do, what, what is the What is the goal? What 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 comes yeah. of that? Like, what is it that comes of that? You you, you just sort of you you lose. You lost. <laughs> like, like you like in the end. You not you specifically, but the person who succumbs to that. They've lost the game within the game. Right. They. You know, I had a great talk the other day with a gun owner, with a gun store owner. Uh, I was, uh, there's a place that I, I love. It's my favorite place to buy meat. I'm not going to say the name of it. I'm sure you know it. It's also a gun store. And uh, it's a gun store and a meat store together upstate somewhere. And, uh, but I was talking to one of the owners of this place and, and it, it somehow came up and we had this incredibly great conversation, even though I know our politics are entirely different. We had this great conversation about sort of like what it, what it would look like, what the perfect way of dealing with all this might be, who would have weapons and when and why, because I, I didn't ever say the words Trump or, you know, right. I didn't say any of the buzzwords that would shift the conversation. And I, cause I was trying to say, look, I, I could tell I like this person. We just have these right, really right. different View, views at a certain at a certain place, you know. It's, I don't know. It's very people it's are very people are super people are super complex, and I think it's it's important to understand when you reflect on your own life and all the experiences you've had and how those experiences shape you in ways that are conscious and subconscious, right? And and it's like a fingerprint. Everybody's a fingerprint. Everybody is supremely unique in their own yeah. person. Like there's not this there's experiences. There's, there's only so much that I can try to understand or process in terms of what you have experienced personally, even how you communicate.
communicate that to me is going to be limited in terms of how I process it. So what you have experienced in your life and how that experience has shaped you and your perspective is completely your own. <laughs> it, is, it is just, it is yours. And so I have to be humble enough to understand and appreciate that. Like I, I have my own experiences that are completely my own. And I can't, I can't assume that you're going to be able to get everything I do or know everything and understand it. It's incumbent upon us to try to work through these dynamics and find some common ground that we can rely upon. But that's also why I think it's important. That's also why we have to have as a society some, some, some reliable markers that, 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 that we can bind ourselves around. Like that's why facts do have to matter. Yes. You know, that's why, that's why science you know, has to matter. Because those are the things that can hold us together. Those are the things that allow us to have a reference point that is objective that we can say, okay, we're coming at this from so many different directions, but we can all agree <laughs> that these are the facts, right? This is science. This is what's happening. Like, and so that's, I get really scared when we start seeing the erosion of facts and the assault on science, because what we're doing is undermining our capacity to find reference points to connect us in an objective world. That, and, if, and if we lose that, then we are really in a tough spot because we don't have anything to hold on to to connect us. We don't have anything to really, you know, and there is- Well, you have to, well as a lawyer, you know you have to, as a lawyer, you know you have to be willing to stipulate to certain facts, right? You exactly. have to- Thank you. you That's have a great to, way to put it. You got to stipulate to certain facts. We can't, I had a conversation with somebody who was, um, you know, talking about supporting me. And he was like, you know, I just want you to know, you know, I support Republicans. I support Democrats. It doesn't matter. I said, you, sh you should listen, you support whoever you want to support. Um, I said, he said, he said, it's important for me to talk to both sides, um, you know, to make sure that I have a good conversation. And, and so I said to him, I said, all true. And I think that's all right. I was like, just be mindful of the fact that you got two folks on the opposite ends of the uh, opposite sides of the road. And you want to talk to both of those people. Um, no question. But you have to agree. And everybody in that discussion has to agree that there's a road. Everybody. Yes. Right. You got to stipulate to the road. Stipulate <laughs> like, to the road. Like, like if, if you can't agree there's an actual road, then you, whoever's on what side of it doesn't matter. The road is not there. Right. So, I mean, we're, so, we're laughing about this, but as you know, man, there are a lot of people who don't want to stipulate to the road. And and so, right, there's a lot of people that 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 want to say who's science. And that's where it gets really no, difficult. Exactly. But it's incumbent again. And this is the other piece that I say to all this. Leadership matters, man. Leadership actually matters. In the same way, this is the, this is kind of like the I would say the the more positive spin on the question about why people um, are drawn to, in some cases, more authoritarian. Yes, um, this is the other side of the equation in a positive way. We are social animals, right? We like to be amongst each other, um, and and within all social dynamics, you know, there's people have different roles, different play, different different parts that they contribute to that social dynamic. Leadership within a social dynamic, especially if it is kind-hearted and loving and compassionate and thoughtful, can be tremendously impactful for the will, for the good, for the goodwill of the of the collective. And there's a, a, almost an intuitive understanding I think human beings have about around that, that, that they see real value in people who can lead 
collective, uh, a collective or a community into a better direction. It is not everybody has the skills to do that, but but when it emerges, we should we should cultivate it. We should, especially if we know it, it is it is aligned with what we're hoping to accomplish in terms of our better angels, our values, our principles, and because leadership can also be incredibly destructive, too. And so we're living in a time, in my mind, where leadership really, really matters because we're going oh, through yes, a it really does. We're going, through, we're going through a period of uncertainty and transition. Things are feeling upended. And so whenever, you know, I always go back to like, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to drill down to like a family dynamic. You know, if 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 the house is is going through something or there's been a crisis or you know, somebody in that house has to emerge as, hey, let's let, here's how here's what we're gonna do. Here's how we're gonna get through this. Here's how it's gonna like. There's somebody has to emerge <laughs> in that situation as the leader to help get people through whatever they're because everybody's got different reactions to the moment. That's a microcosm of what's happening right now in our country. Is that we have a lot of people who are really anxious and uncertain about where we are going, and we don't have enough people stepping up to say calm down. We got this. We're going to get through it. Here's how, right? That, that is the, no one's actually explicitly stating these things. Owning that we're going through a transition, right? Which in and of itself is not easy to do, but also then saying, here's how we're going to work our way through. Um, most people just, most of our so-called leaders just say, hey, you know what? I see this as an opportunity for myself. This is why the prospect of having you uh, as Lieutenant Governor of New York, you know, continuing in that role, uh, which people can vote for on Tuesday, is so uh, important, which is t tomorrow when you guys are listening to this, I, I, I think. Uh, if you're in New York, and if you're not in New York, call your friends who are in New York and, and, and tell them to get out to the polls and support uh, Antonio uh, tomorrow. I appreciate that. Uh, or today, if you're listening to this on, on Tuesday. But with the last few minutes, I want to talk about something. I heard you on, on a podcast uh, and, and refer to yourself as a, a latchkey kid when you were growing up. And, and, and I wonder if you could just talk about your formative years th through, through this, the, this lens and, and what it taught you about one particular thing, two things really. One, the value and difficulty of alone time. But also the second part of the story that I loved is that you were a latchkey kid, but your ex the expectation was you know, you'd let yourself in, that you would do your homework, put it on the dinner table, and your parents would grade it, and they would look at your homework. And a, and a bunch of things struck me about this that I want you to talk about. One, like, so yes, yeah, the thing of being alone and resourcefulness, but also the difficulty of that, but also like, so many people have to work two, three jobs now that they can't monitor their kids' homework. Exactly. It's not just latchkey kid. And like, that, that seems to me like it must have been those expectations on you must have been some kind of amazing North Star. So, and I'm sure there you were. want to give that back to people. Exactly, the expectations. My parents were very much disciplinarians. You know, I grew up in a different time. Um, my mother came from the old school. My, my dad came from the old school when it came to, you know, you know, um, spanking your kids. Uh, you know, that was a real part of my upbringing. And I never felt, just to be clear, abused. I, I never did. I always felt like they were doing it with real love. My mother would cry sometimes when she would hit me. Uh, and she would say, I'm, you know, I'm doing this because I love you so much. Um, 
And that was her way of making sure that I stayed on the straight and narrow. Um, and that was her whole focus was to make sure that I stayed on a straight and narrow path that I did not fall victim to the perils um, of, of, you know, what society can bring to bear. And the educational component of that was very much um, a key foundational piece because they kept talking about how that was going to be the gateway, that if you study really hard in this country and you do really well in school, you put yourself in a very good position to find success in whatever it is you want to pursue. This is going to help you. And we are, we are, it took me a while to understand this, but they also didn't make it about me trying to understand it. They, <laughs> it wasn't really like, oh, let's have a dialogue about this. this, this. <laughs> it wasn't a dialectic conversation. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Let me try to help you understand this. It was, this is what it is, right? <laughs> so, yes. so, so, so that's how I internalized it. I internalized it as this is what it is. Like, there's no real argument here. And so kudos to them because they did it in a way where, and listen, it worked for me. My brother was more rebellious. You know, he's a great, he's great. He's, he's doing great, but he was definitely more rebellious than I was. Didn't just, you know, I was the older one. So, yes. you know, he got to watch me be the guinea pig in that, re- in that respect. Um, but I mean, the fact that they've come home every single night after working at GE, by the way, jobs that were really reliable for them and paid good, you know, good wages and allowed them to work up to the middle class, which is not the case for a lot of families today. Um, they would come home with like clockwork and, and spend two to three hours a night going over our homework. And back then we didn't have laptops. So I do these long book reports and my mother would sit there with a red pen and like go over everything and mark it all up and say, go back and do it again. And my dad would sit down with me and do math problems with me. Even if I came home with a, you know, an 80% or 85% of my math, he would focus on all the problems I got wrong and say, okay, let's go over these problems now that you didn't get right. Right. Like, and then he would tell me why it was so important to do this. And, and if I came home and I said, dad, is this true? He, he said, don't, well, who told you that? Well, the teacher said this, you know, check the source. That was all he would check the source, go get the encyclopedia, look it up. I'm not going to tell you, you look it up. And so that, that type of environment created in me a thirst for knowledge, um, a, dis- a certain level of discipline. Um, and, and to your point, a certain level of solitude too, because I had to start really looking inward to find the strength to um, to execute these things, right? To to, to deliver yeah. on these. <laughs> I mean, so from there to become a, I mean, to really fulfill that and become a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard Law uh, graduate, is really an incredible, really an incredible testament to 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 your parents' plan working out and them maybe recognizing in you that you were capable of 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 achieving all this stuff somehow. And they but they've always been very supportive of me, even when I've made changes that they that didn't they didn't see coming or didn't my dad wanted me to be a doctor. He drilled in me from the day I was a little boy, even though he wasn't a doctor, that I need to be a doctor. And I went to college pre-med because of that. So right. but I had to tell him my sophomore year, I've actually found my passion and it is not medicine. And he told me he was disappointed, but then he moved on. And you know, when my mother- Well, that's great, because mother- it wasn't like you said my passion is to drop out. <laughs> that, you know? that was not a discussion though. You see what I'm saying? Like that was- Yes, that was- yes. <laughs> All right, two more things. Was- I know you have a hard out. You have two more things. Yes. I know you have a hard out. Because uh, uh, you got to go and talk to more people to make sure that you get I elected. I know you have two more minutes. So this is it. Last thing. Two, two small things, quick. One- uh, I guess another time after this election, you got to come on. on. I really want to talk to you about money and politics because seeing my friends who are in your job 
have to dial for dollars. I I wish there were a better way out there in the world because totally you could do so much more a, with your is, time. That is definitely a longer conversation um, because it is a real problem in our system. And as we have more and more inequality in our system, fewer and fewer people have access to their representatives. And that's not a democracy. That's an oligarchy. I agree. So last I, thing. Who, last thing, because I know I got to let you go, because you were a rap artist, you actually released records. Who is the best MC of all time and why is it Jay-Z? Well, Jay-Z is definitely up there for me. It's always, it always goes back and forth for me um, between Jay-Z, uh, Jay Nas. Um, you know, Are you too young for Rakim to be in the conversation? No, no, Rakim, Rakim and I share the same birthday. You know, Rakim, J. Cole, and myself are all born on January 28th. And I take a lot of pride in that fact. So and I'm a big fan of both Rakim and J. Cole. Big, big fans. Um, and, but, you know, in terms of, you know, Biggie, uh, like, there's so many, I can give you arguments for everybody because everybody brings a different, a different dynamic that is unique to them. But the greats are the greats, you know, whether it's Biggie, whether it's Pac, whether it's Nas, whether it's the up and comers like J. Cole and, and Kendrick. Yeah, I was going to say J. Cole is much younger. But all right, I'm going to let you go next. Our next dinner, we got to talk about. I find Jay-Z talks to me more and more the older I get. He's he's like Dylan in that regard, which is he's still just talking to me. The older I get, the older he gets. I, no, I felt like 444. I felt like 444 was as good a hip hop album as like has come out in the last bunch of years. No question. Listen, he's a you remarkable, know. remarkable artist. And just personally, what he's been able to accomplish from where he started, it's just truly amazing. It and is. Okay, Antonio. Quintessential American story. It is, as, as is yours. It's a perfect thing to end on. Antonio Delgado, the lieutenant governor of the great state of New York, running to be lieutenant governor for the next four years. Listen, vote for Antonio because he's great. So brilliant. Also, I mean, he's my friend. You listen to this podcast. You got to go and just go support it for no other reason. It'll just make me happy. All right, dude, go have a great rest of your day. I appreciate you, man. All the best. Thank you, man.